0: Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage.
2: When you accidentally kill someone, there are almost no resources on the planet for how to move forward with your life. So one woman who went through it made one of the only websites in the world for people like her, AccidentalImpacts.org. But life leading up to that point was difficult.
0: I didn't trust happiness. Like, what if I got really happy? Then I might kill somebody else or do something else terrible. Hear her story,
2: plus how one man found a way to cope with his experience by putting it into words on paper,
1: you know, for me, writing about it gave me power over it because I just never talked about it. It was just it was just sitting on top of my head and, and had this sort of amorphous weight. And then having to talk about it, all of a sudden, you're in control of the material, and not it's not in control of you.
2: I'm Kyone Wolf. That's coming up next on Audacious, right after the news. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. One way to frame this show about what it's like to accidentally kill someone is this quote So few of our days contain actions that are irrevocable. Our lives are designed not to allow for anything irrevocable. That's from the 2010 book Half a Life, written by Darren Strauss. It was about what happened when he was driving and struck and killed a classmate who was riding her bike. It happened so fast, and he couldn't have avoided it. You'll hear his story today, and you'll hear the story of Marianne Gray. She had a similar experience, but she struck and killed an eight-year-old boy who ran in front of her car. Just like Darren, she couldn't have stopped it from happening. Years after the accident, she decided to make something useful out of her experience by starting one of the few online resources in the world for people like her and like Darren. A note to listeners who may be sensitive to the topic of suicide, it's mentioned in this first segment. The phone number for the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 800-273-8255. Or you can text the word HOME to 741741. It was 1988. Darren was in the final weeks of his senior year in high school in Long Island, and he was driving with some friends. And up in the distance on his right... He saw two girls riding their bicycles, one of them whose pseudonym in the book is Celine, She wobbled a bit too far to the left, so he honked his horn at her, and and then she corrected herself.
1: And then as I approached, uh, you know, going 40 miles an hour, uh, I was in the far left lane. There was a lane between us, and then the bikes were on the shoulder. And um, one of the bicyclists just swerved uh, directly and abruptly into the car. And I hit her uh, and she died. And then I found out that she went to my high school and I knew her. I didn't recognize her in the street. I don't know if it was uh, shock or what, but uh, it was only later that I, I learned that, um, that it was someone I knew. And it was only much later, years later, um, that I learned that she probably was committing suicide.
2: When you got the call that Celine which is not her real name but it's what we're using for this for this story is um when you found out that Celine had died the next day um do you remember what that call was like
1: You know uh, looking back now because it was quite a long time ago over 30 years ago at this point but it was just so uh it was just like being out of oneself I just you know I don't know I was just sort of a walking zombie you know I was filled with guilt and uh, fear and uh, concern for her family and concern for my own future because I thought this is going to totally ruin me you know and it was very important to me that it was clear that it wasn't my fault you know I mean so I really leaned on the fact that the police and five cars worth of eyewitnesses all said you know it wasn't your fault but i didn't really believe them even though i guess i knew intellectually it wasn't my fault you know if you're driving 40 miles an hour and someone cuts 10 feet in front of you on a bicycle there's really nothing you can do but knowing knowing that intellectually and really believing it um, is, are two different things and uh, so i guess i spent so much of my time in that period you know, going to the library, because this is before Google or any sort of internet access. So just going to the library and researching like, um, reaction times. And if I'm going 40 miles an hour, and she's going 10 miles an hour into me, you know, what, how many hundredths of a second do I have to react? And then in that period, how much time does it take for the neurons to start firing all those things just to try to, you know, exonerate myself.
2: accountability I think really sets people apart in my world when I float through it and when I think about myself whether you know you did something a little bit wrong or you made some sort of mistake big or little if you can own up to it as sincerely as possible you know it can reduce any sort of mental damage emotional damage but you've been wrestling with accountability this whole time and you know the facts, you know, you know, everything you could possibly know and still you're trying to wrestle with this feeling of accountability. I wondered when you think about that word in the context of what happened, what do you feel about that
1: word? I was lucky in a way that it wasn't my fault, but i met people, you know, when a book like that comes out, um, there aren't that many stories like this out there. So I many, many people contacted me and I heard from a lot of people who were in accidents that were their fault. And I that is something that's much harder, you know, like they were drunk or they were, you know, looking at their phone or whatever it was. Um, but I think that there's something interesting about what I went through too, because I did hear from a lot of people who felt guilt or, culpability or accountability for something that they weren't at fault for. I think there's, when something bad happens, sometimes you feel, you feel culpability or you feel um, accountability, as you said, even if you're not to blame. So I heard from many people who felt bad about things they had no business feeling bad about. I heard from a twin whose birth was botched. And so her brother was born with serious Mental defects because the doctor screwed up after she came out, and she felt guilty about that. As you know, as if she had something to do with that. I've heard from someone, the daughter of a famous person, actually, who who died, uh, who said she felt guilty when her father died because she laughed at the funeral, even though she was eight years old. For forty years, she carried that guilt around. How how could I have laughed at this funeral? And, you know, she's an eight-year-old kid, and it's very hard to deal with those feelings even as an adult. So, you know, there's something about the way we're wired, I think, that sometimes makes us feel accountable, even if there's no cause to – accountable is the wrong word. I think accountability is important, but there's guilt that we sometimes feel over things that aren't our fault, you know. And this goes for even things like breakups or, you know, your parents' divorce, all these things that happen in our life that we feel uh, responsible for when we're not responsible for.
2: Yeah, it's almost like – these things can't just happen. You know, we've got to have some say in anything, the, the bad things that happen to good people. <laughs> it can't be that simple. <laughs> Please let me have some control, some say. Yeah, well, that
1: was a tough lesson to learn for a 17-year-old kid, or 18, I, got, I just turned 18, I keep saying 17, you know, that any day could hold real tragedy and real consequence, you know, now, there's no rhyme or reason to a lot of these things it told me early on that when people say oh there's a reason everything happens for a reason oh god no you know it gave me reason to be skeptical skeptical of that at a very young age you know and people would say like oh it happened for a reason and i would make me really angry that yeah well the you know there's a girl dead for no reason I, I can't imagine there's a reason for that
2: yeah say that to her parents
1: yeah yeah obviously if i could take it back uh, i would because someone is dead but i used to really focus on why was i driving i was with three of my friends i wish one of them had been driving they wouldn't have to deal with this because they all i'm sure it affected them and i talked i am in touch with one of them still and, and you know it didn't affect him but not in the same way so i was always mad I, why was i driving but now i kind of feel like i wouldn't switch with him if this had to happen in a way i feel like it sort of made me who i am and so can't imagine it not having happened now because I think it, it did sort of make me more uh, compassionate person towards people who are going through things. It did teach me a lot about, like, someone is not here, so obviously I would switch it if I could. But I, the stuff I used to focus on, like, why me and not the other drivers, I don't, I don't think that way anymore.
2: It's been over 30 years, and you've devoted a lot of your emotional energy to this. <laughs> you've written about this. You, you talked to me about it. Um, I wonder if you could go back to 18-year-old Darren um, maybe a few days after it happened and tell him something. What would you want to tell him?
1: That's a really good question. Um, I mean, that's sort of why I wrote the book, because there was nothing... For someone like me. And it was not, I'm not saying like anyone in an accident, but uh, that particular accident, but no one, you know, who, nothing to sort of navigate those moments when you're not sure if you're blame and something massive happens. I mean, that's that's why I think I heard from so many people like there are just so many, well, there are tons of car accidents. You know, I, I didn't realize what a big community it was. Only, I mean, there are 20,000 motor vehicle deaths a year in this country. So, but, Anyway, so I would, I'd given the book, and I guess the message of the book is just uh, just accept that this happened, and you know, realize that not everything is your fault. I mean, and also not to expect closure, because I don't think I don't think closure is a real thing. I think it's just learning to live with these things that are always going to be part of us. Yeah, I think I say in the book that uh, a line from. T.S. Eliot, which is uh, things don't go away, they they become us, right? So this just became part of who I am and you have to deal with these things.
2: I like that I'm able to see you uh, as we talk. And I don't know what you're like when you're not talking about this, but I see in you a lot of discomfort, um, a lot of pain. Why do you talk about this?
1: It's a, well, that's a good point. I don't think I'm normally just fidgety. <laughs> uh, it's tough to talk about it, even 30 years later. Um, this thing that was the most secret part of myself is now one of the most public parts of me. And for years I hid it, so I was ashamed. I guess that's something else I would talk to my younger self about, which is don't be um, don't be ashamed of it. You know, these things this just happened to you. It's not, it's not something to be ashamed of. So I. I treated college like a witness protection program. I say, like I, I went. This happened at the end of school. Went off to college. Luckily for me, it was pre-Google, so no one knew. I didn't tell anyone for years and years and years. I, I just swallowed it, and so I think that's that's why I wrote about it uh, eventually, and that's why writing about it was so helpful. You know, for me, writing about it gave me power over it because I just never talked about it. It was just it was just sitting on top of my head in my brain and, and had this sort of amorphous weight and then having to talk about it, let me sort of control it. Okay, you put this word before that word and then you put a period here and you tell this part and you leave this part out. All of a sudden you're in control of the material and not, it's not in control of you. And so talking about it, you know, the reason I agreed to talk to you is because um, two reasons. One, I think it's important to get the story out there so people, every time I do, radio interview or something I hear from people because they've heard it and they say, Oh, I know someone who went through this, or I went through this myself because again, there are so many thousands of accidents a year deaths and that's not even counting serious injuries. So there's that, but also just for me, you know, even now, 30 years later, you know, I'm much better about it, but it's still hard to talk about. So I'm sure every time I talk about it, it'll get less, less painful.
2: This event has, defined you but you're not this one thing and I wonder how you hold that because it defines you because it happened and it was a huge deal and you have found ways to make this story not only help you psychologically and emotionally but help other people as well and you're more than this
1: yeah thank you for saying that I mean I feel like I, I, I really want it not to define me so um, I want to just sort of put in one big frame in the mo- uh, one big stitch in the mosaic of my life, but that's not I don't want it to define me. I think it's important for people who have gone through anything bad to realize that it won't define you. And so it is it is however you want it to be in in your story, your overall life story, and you can decide how it's going to be your it's your life, you have a right to to decide that and so I remember you know someone who had read the book said to me well what what gives you the right to tell the story you know she's dead who are you to tell the story and I said I'm not telling her story I'm telling my story and my story involves her for a brief moment that was a huge thing for both of us but um I'm just telling my story and I want to define myself the way I I say not the way that the accident. says So I don't, I don't think it defines me just as anything you're going through won't define you or anyone listening, you know, you're not one thing.
2: I know you have to figure out when you meet new people, um, especially um, I'd heard you say that when you were dating, you had to figure out like, Oh, when do I bring it up? And I find myself feeling kind of self-conscious seeing you here on zoom. And I'm thinking like, am I looking too sorry at him you know am i am i looking too worried but does he get the pity face all the time like how how can people who take this story in like me i mean how can they how can they screw up receiving this story
1: no one's ever asked me that's a great question yeah (laughs) Uh, i think i have an honest reaction you know people would either tell you oh don't don't be sad you're fine it's not a big deal or
2: everything happens for a reason
1: Yeah. Everything happens for a reason. They're, Oh, come on. You're, you're here. You're fine. And then there's people who sort of overdo it. Like, you know, will make themselves have a super sad face whatever, but you know, just you had such a normal human reaction. I think that's just all you can expect from someone. But thank you for asking that.
2: Darren Strauss. Thank you so much for talking with me.
1: Oh, thank you. No, it was really great. It was, it was lovely.
2: Darren's book is called Half a Life. And because, yes, he is more than this one thing, you should know that his latest book is called Queen of Tuesday, a Lucille Ball story. When we get back.
0: You know, all of a sudden the world felt completely unsafe. And so suddenly everywhere I looked, I saw the potential for me to hurt people. Hear from Marianne
2: Gray, the founder of AccidentalImpacts.org. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Today we're talking with people who have killed another person accidentally. You just heard from Darren Strauss, and now I want you to meet Marianne Gray. It was 1977, mid June. She was 22 years old.
0: I had spent the morning in Cincinnati with friends. I was actually planning to move there. And it was a gorgeous day. I was driving home and I was thinking that I might get to the swimming pool for the first time you know, of the season. And I was really looking forward to that. But I was driving through a very small residential area. A little boy dashed in front of my car he darted out into the road from my left i saw him at the last minute but there was nothing i could do i i hit him and um and right away you know i knew it was bad i pulled over i don't remember getting out of my car and running across the road. I've just lost some amount of time, not much, but I kind of came back to consciousness. I was kind of hiding literally behind a bush in someone's yard watching. And fortunately the child was being attended to. There were lots of people around him giving him first aid. So that was a huge relief because that was my first instinct was get to the child, see what, what happened. And I was there when his mother, you know, came out of the house screaming and the neighbors, the women were kind of holding her. And, um, you know, this was a long time ago in a little rural area when there weren't very good kind of emergency services, so it took the police about 20 or 25 minutes to arrive. You know, it was endless, just agony. And I was just in shock, but I was also, I also realized what had happened and realized it was very serious. When the police came, they actually beat the ambulance. So they, Took the boy in the back of a police car and went off to the hospital. And only then did an officer kind of start talking to people. And at that point, I kind of went running up to him, literally. <laughs> and I said, I was waving my hand and I was like, I did it. I did it. Because nobody had really noticed me or seen me or paid attention to me or said anything to me. And I was scared. I was scared I was going to be attacked because, you know, I'd watched his mother screaming and just in agony. And I watched the neighbors, just that little knot of people that gather and they're crying and they're shocked and they're devastated. And I'd watched all that. So I was really scared. I thought people were going to kill me. And I, so I went, right next to the police officer and he put me in the back of a car police car and took my statement so mostly I was just sitting in the back of this police car kind of I'm not religious but of course I was praying and I was trying to tell myself that maybe the child would be okay, that maybe wasn't as bad as I thought. and and I was telling myself that I had to stay calm and help the police, that I couldn't break down, that I was the one who caused all this trouble, that I needed to be an adult. even I was twenty two, I thought I was an adult, but I needed to be an adult and and be helpful. At some point in the afternoon, an officer, came back to the car and told me that the child had died. And, you know, at that point, I kind of, it's, it's kind of common in trauma, but I remember just feeling like I was completely outside my body. Like I was looking at myself sitting in the back of that police car, just kind of leaning over my hands over my belly, crying and trying not to cry because I needed to be the grown up. You know, and I just remember watching myself do that. I was fortunate in the midst of all of this horror and trauma and tragedy that one of the neighbors was kind enough to approach the police and get permission to, first she came to the car and she offered me some water and a cold towel. And then she invited me into her home so I didn't have to sit all alone in that police car. When I tell this story, this is the part where I still will tear up every time, every time, it was so kind. It was such a, in some ways, a huge gesture, in other ways, a very small gesture. Just the opportunity to sit with someone who was comforting and sympathetic and kind made a huge difference going forward. I don't know what would have happened had I not had that bit of humanity extended to me. Um, so I stayed with her for, 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 I don't know, a few hours. And then the police were like, okay, you could go home now. Do you, are do you feel okay to drive? Uh-huh. <laughs> no, no, I don't feel okay to drive. So I called um, I called a faculty member professor who didn't live that far away. And he came and picked me up, stayed with him for a few hours, spent the night with my closest friend, called my parents. That was horrible. Um, and after that, I was kind of on my own for quite a while.
2: What kind of changes did you notice in the way that you were Floating through life, what were the most stark ways you changed?
0: Uh, it was pretty dramatic, actually. Um, at the time this crash happened, I was at a peak of happiness in my life. I had been pursuing a master's in psychology, uh, kind of following the program that my family and my background had laid out for me. I realized I wasn't happy with it. I was way too young emotionally in any way to be a therapist. I mean, it was a crazy idea. And I got up my courage and told my parents a few weeks before the accident that I was taking a leave of absence from school, um, which very quickly turned into, into leaving the program, and that I was going to just live for a while. And I had made arrangements to move into a kind of urban commune in Cincinnati with a bunch of other kids who I really liked. And it just felt like the world was opening up. And I was super happy and excited and felt like I was just coming into my own. And I was coming into my own. All of that I now know from where I sit all these years later was completely age-appropriate. My parents were very unhappy about it. Which
2: is age appropriate, right?
0: <laughs> yeah. And then this crash happened. So initially, I just had extremely severe kind of traumatic stress symptoms. I had constant, what would be called intrusive images, some flashbacks. I would be in the middle of just trying to do something and an image of, you know, a horrible image, I won't go into them, Will would pop into my head and just stop me so I really couldn't concentrate I could barely you know I would turn on the tv and hours would go by but I couldn't have told you you know what I had watched or whatever I was very sad I mean a child a little eight-year-old boy and his name was Brian you know he died and I knew his family was you know beyond Devastated, and I was guilty, and I was scared. Um, I was scared of two things. First, I was scared of what would happen to me. Were people going to hate me? Was I going to have to go to court? Was I going to be, you know, bullied or ostracized? But I was also scared, and and this was the more lasting scare that. Anything could happen anytime. You know, all of a sudden the world felt completely unsafe. Like this kid just ran out. And so suddenly everywhere I looked, I saw the potential for danger. And I saw the potential for me to hurt people. So I was extremely scared and vigilant. Um, I ended up giving up my car because I would hallucinate people in the road. When I first got back behind the wheel, I'd be driving and I think I saw somebody stepping into the road and I would slam on my brakes, which is a really good way to cause an accident. Fortunately, I was just lucky, but I realized that was not viable. So I gave up my car for almost two years. I didn't drive. I just took the bus I also had, um, you know, I was alone so much in the days initially after this accident that I, I don't recommend that. A lot of pretty crazy thinking took root. I wanted to be alone. I kept the blinds drawn. I just, I just hid out. But I a lot of crazy thoughts took hold. And one of them was that. I had taken a child from his mother, and that my punishment was that I would never have my own children. And before that, I mean, it was—it had been. Of course, I was going to have kids. I mean, now it's just what women did. But I never did. I mean, that took root so deeply that it turned out to be the case. The other big impact for me was um, because this crash happened at a peak of happiness and joy and excitement, I no longer trusted, I, you know, I felt I didn't deserve happiness for sure. I was blamed myself and was very self punishing in all kinds of ways, but I also didn't trust happiness. Like what if I got really happy then I might forget to be vigilant and then I might kill somebody else or do something else terrible. So every time I got happy, I'd be like, okay, Marianne, you know what happens when you get happy, you know what happens. You better be careful. So you're always suspended in this. I had to tamp it down, tamp it down. The adults around me, my professors, my parents, other relatives that I loved and friends, you know, the people who loved me without exception said to me, you know, this was a terrible, tragic accident. It is horrible that an eight-year-old was killed, but it wasn't your fault. You did nothing wrong. You're a young woman with your whole life ahead of you. You need to just, you know, take a few weeks, get over it and then move on with your life. And I wanted to do that, but I couldn't. You know, I had all this other stuff going on. And I didn't feel like it was my right to demand attention or solace or comfort. I was the one who created this problem. I was the one who devastated a family, Totally upset my own family. You know, the whole community was mourning for this child. And I had done it. It was me. So I felt like I just had to suck it up and deal with my own thoughts and feelings and not expect other people to comfort me. I was, you know, if I couldn't comfort them, at the very least, I could just not ask them to take care of me. So I got very good at hiding what was really going on. Now I'd be sitting at dinner with my housemates and having a conversation on one level or eating or cooking or whatever. And on the other level, I'd be having this, you know, these images, these intrusive images, or I'd be thinking about the child or I'd be scared. I wouldn't see like a knife on the countertop and get scared that someone would hurt themselves. But all of that was going on as invisible as I could make it. And so there was a big gap, you know, a big disconnect between me and other people that had not been there before, at least to the same degree.
2: That was Marianne Gray. She's the founder of AccidentalImpacts.org. After
0: the break. Guilt is appropriate under the circumstances. But I, you know, I finally learned, like, okay, how can I channel the guilt? How can I use this guilt? How Marianne
2: created a community for people just like her. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Be right back. This is Audacious. I'm Kion Wolf. Today, stories and perspective from people who've accidentally killed someone. Back in June of 1977, Marianne Gray was 22 years old. She'd been at the peak of happiness in her life, taking time off from school, making arrangements to move into a new place with some friends. She was driving in a rural area of Cincinnati, and an eight-year-old named Brian darted out in front of her car, She had no time to swerve. When he died, her whole world shut down. She felt guilty. She felt scared. Scared of what was going to happen to her and scared because now she knew that really horrible things could happen to anyone at any time. All of a sudden, just existing felt completely unsafe. Let's get back to our conversation. When I listen to you tell this story, every time you talk about, you know, it was me, it was my fault if it wasn't for me, I feel like I, this is the first time I'm meeting you, seeing you, but I feel this, like, compulsion to be like, no, I, I no, this is not you. You know, I, I naturally feel like, but don't you see, if if it had happened to me, you wouldn't think, Kayon, how could you? You wouldn't want me to go through what you went through, but, <laughs> but... I guess as it's sort of an eternal question because this applies to anybody. How do we find a path into compassion for ourselves? The compassion that other people have for us. I'm a stranger and I have it for you, but you, you right. couldn't, <laughs> I don't know how close you are to it now, but how close are you to it now? And how do you, how did you get there? Well,
0: I have spent, you know, probably, Hundreds of therapy sessions and thousands of hours writing and thinking and talking and sorting all of this out. But, you know, there's different ways we cause things in the world. You know, we could say, oh, that avalanche caused the death of the steers, right? But nobody's blaming the avalanche. The avalanche doesn't have any morality. And in some ways, I feel like that is not a bad analogy for my situation and those who have had similar experiences to mine, that I really did do nothing wrong, and this child darted into the street. So I don't hold myself culpable, but I did cause his death. I drove the car into his body. I did that. And so when I say, even to this day, I blame myself, I'm not making a moral judgment. For decades, it was a very severe moral judgment, and we could talk about that. today, it's more of a statement of fact, or a description, really, of what took place. I mean, I I did do this. I also believe, um, having said I don't hold myself culpable, you know, I will never know. It is certainly possible that had you been behind the wheel, you would have seen him coming or made some evasive maneuver or, you know, I'll never know that. I wasn't speeding. I wasn't playing the radio, you know, we're fumbling.
2: There were no cell phones in 1977. Yeah,
0: there were no cell phones, but I wasn't like looking in my purse or playing with stuff in the car. I was just following the traffic, you know, and so I know I wasn't doing anything wrong. It doesn't mean that somebody else could would not have done a better job. And maybe somebody else would have realized there were kids in that area and Maybe they would have paid more attention. I don't think so, but I do blame myself. I also have come to believe very strongly, and this is fairly recent, that guilt is appropriate under the circumstances. Now, Herb Morris, a philosopher, wrote about non-moral guilt, which is a concept that I love. And you know what? What would we think about somebody who did what I did and? didn't feel guilty. We would think they were the coldest person in the world. And so when people would say to me, oh, you don't need to feel guilty, you shouldn't feel guilty, whatever, you know, it wasn't your fault. It was just an accident. That's a, that's a really good one that we all hate hearing. It was just an accident.
2: Things happen for a reason does not apply. Right. That's, oh, that's, that's, that's that, not, that, no.
0: That I could write a whole essay about. <laughs> Yeah, I would read that. But yes, no. Yeah, yeah. But I I think guilt is appropriate. And so for me, the question becomes, are you going to let that guilt paralyze you? Are you going to torture yourself? Or are you going to use it in some way and channel it in some way? Healthy guilt is motivating. It's a signal to ourselves to make amends. Well, when you kill somebody, you can't really fix that situation. There's no cleaning it up. And my guilt was so extreme that it just paralyzed me. It froze me. And I stayed locked in kind of self-punishment and self-recrimination for years and years. So now I say, you know, I finally learned, like, okay, how can I channel the guilt? How can I use this guilt? There was a very
2: thoughtful New Yorker article written about this, including your experience. I love that article. We'll link to it on the website. And they brought up a passage in the book of Numbers, in the fourth book of the Torah, where God instructs Moses to tell the Israelites that they are to designate six cities of refuge so that anyone who kills someone inadvertently may flee there. Will you talk about that and what that meant for
0: you to read? Sure. So I'm Jewish, but I grew up without any religious education or didn't go to temple. It just wasn't part of my family life. And I knew odds and ends about Judaism. But one of the ways I kind of tortured myself after this accident was um, I remembered people saying to me things like, Christians care about what's in your heart and your soul and your mind, but Jews are focused on what you do. So I was like, oh, so that's not very hopeful. And there's a passage in the Yom Kippur of Atonement Services that basically says, you have to ask for forgiveness from the person you hurt, which of course I, I felt entirely unable to do at the time. And so I just kind of figured I was screwed. And that religion could only make me feel worse, that it had nothing to offer. And then on a day when I didn't really feel like working, so I was just Randomly googling things i I found I think I googled accidental killing or something like that, and all of a sudden, there it was. It's in several different places in the Torah, and it turns out, yeah, there was this elaborate set of rules about what to do if you unintentionally kill someone. And the way it worked was, um like if you're out in the forest chopping wood, say, and your axe head flies off the handle and it embeds itself in you know, the person chopping wood a few trees down and kills them so that you've unintentionally killed them. So what you have to do is run as fast as you can, flee to one of these six cities of refuge. Once you get there, The relatives of the person that you've killed are not allowed in. If they get to you before that, they can take their revenge and kill you in retaliation. But once you get to the city of refuge, you're safe. The roads to the cities of refuge, there were all these rules. They had to be wider than a usual road. They had to have really good signage. If there were bridges, the bridges had to be well-maintained. It was the whole society's shared responsibility to get that accidental killer to safety. Once they got there, the city elders let them into the city, and they would stay there until there was a trial, basically. If they were found to have committed murder, they were executed. That's what happened back then. But if they were found to have, in fact, unintentionally killed someone, they had to remain inside the city of refuge until the high priest, I think in Jerusalem, died. And at that point, whether it was three days or 30 years, then they could go home. Inside the city of refuge, They were given jobs, they were given homes, the cities allowed them to hold office and receive honors, but people, everybody had to know, you know, you couldn't hide who you were, you had to be open. People knew you were an accidental killer and you couldn't leave if you left the city, Again, the relatives, what the Torah called the blood avengers, could come after you and kill you with impunity. So to make sure you didn't have to leave, there was always a water supply in the cities and ample food and just everything you needed. There were all kinds of other rules that I won't go into and many different interpretations about you know, what it meant to be restricted to the city and why the high priest's death was a release. And, you know, there's hundreds of pages of commentary on this in the Talmud and the scholars over the generations. But I love the idea that a society had a whole set of procedures and rules that on the one hand held the accidental killers fully accountable for what happened. Um, there were quite serious consequences, but on the other hand, it was extremely compassionate, right? You know, they could have been exiled like Oedipus, You know, who killed his father, slept with his mother, gouged out his own eyes and exiled himself to the desert. You know, they could have done that and said, well, you don't deserve to be in society anymore, but they didn't. They said, you're, you're part of our community. And we realize that you did something very serious and that has consequences for you. So I think it's a beautiful concept.
2: Yeah. That must've been, I mean, I have to imagine even though, you know, these things happen, that you also felt like you were the only one this has ever happened to. And then, you know, when you read that, when you, when you research that, you know, it's written in 1400 BC. Right. <laughs> so this is something that people have been thinking about for a long time. And it was obviously yeah. a big enough deal to make yeah. it into something like that. It makes you feel less alone.
0: Very much so.
2: What are some things that people maybe misunderstand about the work you're doing?
0: I'm not trying to create a new class of victim here. <laughs> I realize, you know, if if we're not exactly perpetrators, we're certainly not victims. And the real victim is the person who died and all of those who mourn for that person. So I want to be really clear about that. I believe in accountability, and I think that's essential to society and essential to our own well-being. But I also think we could be compassionately accountable. We could hold people accountable with compassion. We can hold ourselves accountable with compassion. But I I always worry that people are going to kind of get their backs up and say, oh, she's just trying to say that she's the victim. It's like, no, no, I get that.
2: Listening to you tell the story about what happened, I can sense your discomfort i i see that it's still difficult to talk about which makes sense of course what does it do to you to tell the story now
0: i've mixed feelings about it in some ways you know i'm not thrilled to be the poster child for accidental killing it's not that's not really what i wanted in my life and there's
2: more to you than this you are not one thing
0: there's a lot more to you than that and so in that regard I don't love it in another way I know that every time I tell my story my website is going to get more hits and I'm going to get more emails and people are going to write more comments to the website and so it's my mission I've chosen this, I've bought into it. So I appreciate the opportunity to tell my story.
2: Well, Marianne Gray, thank you so much for talking with me.
0: Thank you. You've taken on a challenging topic, but I think it's an important one. Me too.
2: My original interview with Marianne was 50 minutes long and included some really wonderful advice for people who've accidentally seriously hurt or killed someone and for the people who care for them. Head on over to wherever you get your podcasts, and you'll see a bonus track with that full audio. And of course, visit Marianne's website, accidentalimpacts.org. Subscribe to Audacious, and you'll always get to hear the show a day early, and our landing page is at ctpublic.org slash audacious. This show is produced by me, Jessica severin Dimartinez, Martinez, and Katie Tolarski at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. Send me your reactions on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Kion wolf And my email is cwolf at ctpublic.org. Thanks for listening.